Welcome to worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. Church, as we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word as we continue in our series entitled The Life of David. And Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 29, 1 Samuel chapter 30 through 2 Samuel chapter 1. Those are going to be the passages that we look at this morning. I love preaching through the story of David. I find the story of David to be endlessly fascinating. I'm not the only one to think that. Outside of Jesus Christ and outside of the Apostle Paul, there's no more fully formed character and storyline in all of the Bible than the story of David. Some of the great artistic achievements and cultural milestones of Western civilization have been inspired by the very story that we're giving our attention to, sculptures from Michelangelo and Donatello, inspired by the story of David, paintings of Rembrandt, Carl Nilsson's opera called Saul and David, Jeff Buckley, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. When we think of the heights of artistic achievements, we couldn't forget Phil Vischer's VeggieTales, Dave and the Giant Pickle. <laughs> you get the point. There, there is something that is endlessly fascinating about the rise and the fall of the second king of Israel, King David. And it's not just fascinating because it is a story that is intriguing. It is fascinating to us because it is more importantly true to us. And like all of God's word, it is profitable to us for instruction and correction and training in, 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 in righteousness. So last week we left King David as he was sojourning, as he fled to this foreign land of the Philistines. He's pillaging and he's raiding these other clans and villages and he's giving tribute back to the king, King Achish, who gives him cover to live there. When we fast forward a couple chapters later from chapter 27 to chapter 29, we find the unthinkable before us. King David and his 600 mighty men are in Philistia and they're joining their forces with the Philistines to raid the Israelites. I mean, is there any lower place that David could stoop to than, than betraying his own people? And we don't have all of the knowledge to be able to examine the psychological state of David, nor can we examine all the motivations. So we've got two options here that the text doesn't tell us. Maybe this is David's Benedict Arnold moment. This maybe is the time where the long-awaited king is going to betray his people as he, as he joins arms with the Philistines to fight the Israelites. Or maybe this is a ruse. Maybe David's a mole. Maybe David has privately communicated to his people there's 600 mighty men that when we go to battle with the Israelites, this is going to be, I uh, wouldn't say, but the, the equivalent is this, this is just Trojan horse moment. And he would turn against the Philistines in that moment. And we don't know. Nor does the text give us what's going to happen in that moment. We don't know if it's a ruse. We don't know if he's betraying his people because the other Philistine kings hear that David is fighting with them and they say, that David? 
The David that the Israelites sing songs about, Saul kills his thousands and this David kills his tens of thousands. The same David that slayed the, the heavyweight champion of the Philistines, Goliath, we're not going to fight with him. So the other kings send him and his men, uh, they, they send him packing. They go back home where they're, they've made a camp and guess what has happened back at the ranch while David and all the men had joined forces with the Philistines, the Amalekites had come in and they had plundered their property. They pillaged the village and they had taken captive David's two wives and the 600 men that he's fighting with took captive all of their family. And so we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 30 as David realizes what has occurred while he's been gone and David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke, his mighty men spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself and the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Raymond the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod of David and David did what he inquired of the Lord. Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. I have a feeling some of you know the phrase that there are no atheists in foxholes. You know what it is. Some of you personally know what it is to be in harm's way. David is, is living out this phrase that this crisis for David is going to be a catalyst for spiritual renewal. This low point of uncertainty for the, the families of all of the men, his mighty men that have they've joined forces together. David's two wives, they've been taken captive by this invasion and this invasion is going to awaken his soul back to God. It's been chapters since David strengthened himself in the Lord. It's been chapters since David inquired of the Lord here. And it would take this moment of all this uncertainty of the Amalekites raiding his own place, their own temporary home, to bring David back to his senses. Seems really far from our air-conditioned sanctuary. It's not as far from current events as we might feel in our own context. But I want you to see in this, this story how, how tragedy and disappointment was this cold bucket of water that awakened David out of a spiritual slumber. And I want you to know and be reminded of what you probably have lived is that when we go to those foreign lands and we, we live in rebellion to the Lord, oftentimes he doesn't cushion our fall. Oftentimes it is disappointment. Oftentimes it is difficulty. Oftentimes it is tragedy that awakens our soul back to God. The details are different. And I have a feeling all of you in the sanctuary could tell a unique story of this, but the story I've heard for 20 years as a pastor, it goes a little bit like this, but the details are different. Somebody might say, I, I was raised in the church, became a follower of Jesus when I was seven or nine or 11 or 12. 
was active in the youth ministry, went off to college. And it was in my first year of college, I, I began to, to move away from the way of God, the will of God. It was a time of me running from God. And the details are different, but you've heard this, you've maybe lived this, maybe one drink too many, you're behind the wheel, you're going too fast, you swerve off the road, you side swipe a tree, you're able to walk away. And then the very next morning after that Saturday night, there's a church that is a mile away from your apartment off the campus that you're living on. And for whatever reason, you're drawn to that church and you sit on the back row and it's the familiar songs and the preaching of God's word that begins to stir your heart. And it is an accident that that will not only physically sober you up, but it is an accident that will spiritually sober you up and bring you back to your senses. Sometimes in life, we think the dead ends are the end. But oftentimes, God uses the dead ends of disappointment. Oftentimes, God uses the dead end of tragedy. Oftentimes, God uses the dead ends of the painful consequences of our own actions, not as a dead end in our life, but a detour to get us back into a place of repentance. It is the prodigal son that Jesus describes in Luke chapter 15, who is living it up in a foreign land. And it is only when he runs out of food and it's only when he has nowhere else to turn and he looks to his right and he looks to his left and he's in a pigsty, it's then that he comes to his senses. And it's then that he makes that journey back home, waiting with the father to embrace him. And sometimes in your life and in my life, God uses what he uses in David's life to awaken our soul back to him. So picking up the story, David and his 400 men, 400 of the 600 pursue the Amalekites. After he seeks the Lord and he finds the Amalekites in this drunken festival celebration, David and his men sweep in, uh, sweep in and, and, and swept in and they defeated them and they recovered all the animals, the text tells us, recovers all of his family members. David breathes a sigh of relief and then we pick up the results of this in chapter 30, verse 26. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Passing verse. It's easy in your Bible reading plan just to move past this and not pause and consider and ponder the, the difference that a few chapters have made in David's life. If you rewind when David was living in Ziklag, when he was under the umbrella of the king of Gath, Achish, he was pillaging and he was plundering property and he was giving back a tribute to the foreign king. And so now, these chapters later, as he inquires of the Lord, as he sought the Lord, now he's bringing the spoils of the war and he's sharing them with his own people. This is the way that the long and awaited king will come back to his people. This is God preparing him to take the throne. Chapter 30 ends. And if we see this as a movie, we have a scene shift that moves from David 
giving the spoils of the war to his people, and we're back into a battle here, and the Israelites are fighting the Philistines, and the camera zooms in upon Saul, and we see Saul and his sons, and we notice David again, not David, but we notice Jonathan again, David's best friend, and they're in the midst of the battle, and the battle's not going their way, and the Philistines are overtaking them, and then we begin to see one by one, Saul's own sons are struck down. Jonathan dies. Saul's wounded by an archer who strikes him with an arrow. He's down there, writhing with pain. He takes his own life. Tragic ending to 1 Samuel chapter 31. A sad final installment of Saul's life. This has been the fall of Saul that we've come. Now, we're not tracing the contours of Saul's life in this. This has been a message series entitled The Life of David, but they're so intertwined with one another. And at the end of chapter 31, we move to 2 Samuel chapter 1, but they're they're one story. In the Hebrew Bible, there's not a 1 Samuel and a 2 Samuel. It's not a prequel and a sequel. It's one book that was divided because it was too long for the scrolls here. And so it's not surprising to us that the end of 1 Samuel in our English Bibles will go right into David hearing the news of Saul's tragic death. But he hears it. Well, he hears it from a witness, but is he a reliable witness? Picking up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 6. The young man who's an Amalekite told David, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me. And he called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord, to you, David. And David took hold of his clothes, and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. First Samuel chapter 31 right here, second Samuel chapter one right here, we begin to compare and contrast the stories. And it's the story of the same thing, the death of Saul, but they have differing details. And some people with the lazy read of the end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel will say, here we go. Here's another example of how we can't trust the Bible. Here we have a contradiction of these stories here. They're, 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 not, they're not coming together in this seamless one here. Can't trust the Bible. 
But I would tell you, it's not the Bible that you cannot trust. It is not the Holy Spirit that you cannot trust, but it is the narrator of 2 Samuel chapter 1 who is telling David, this Amalekite, he is lying. And so the difference in these two stories of Saul committing suicide and a mercy killing of this Amalekite is that the Amalekite is lying. What most likely is happening here is the Amalekite comes upon this bloody battlefield after the fact. And he sees in this opportunistic way, he sees an opportunity to take from Saul the, uh, all of the, the regalia of the kingdom and bring it back to David, thinking that David would be endeared to him and put him in the palace and put him in a place of honor as he is, as he is taken in, in this merciful killing. Well, David, is, he has shown us two times that he will not put his hand on the Lord's anointed. He has showed us twice that he will not strike Saul down. And so in this moment, he doesn't know who's telling the truth here. He doesn't know that the Amalekite is lying, but he does know this, that this Amalekite is not, he has not recognized the honor of Saul. He has not recognized the honor of the Lord's anointed and he puts him to death. And then the rest of this chapter is a song. It is a song of grief, a song of lament. And it's really surprising to us. If you've been tracing the contours of this story, Saul is finally dead. Here, here's this man, along with his henchmen, who have been hounding David for chapters after chapters, which were years of his life. You would think in this moment, David would sing, but it would be a celebratory song. You would think in this moment David would sing, but he would sing something like, ding dong, the king is dead. The wicked king is dead. That's not what he sings. He sings a song of lament that goes like this. Your glory, verse 19, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You want to know the theme of David's song of lament? You find it right here in verse 19 because it's repeated again in verse 25. It's repeated again in verse 27. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. How can David grieve over the death of Saul? How can David grieve over the death of the one who had chased him down and wanted him dead, who betrayed him again and again and went back on his word? What's well, a mixed grief? Some of the source of David's grief is obviously that his, his best friend, closest friend, most loyal friend is Saul's son, who is named what? Jonathan. And so he is hearing not just of Saul's death, but he's hearing of Jonathan's death. And the, the strongest words of affection for David's friendship with Jonathan are going to be on the words of his song in verse 26. You see it here in your Bible. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. There have been scholars in the recent decades that have looked at this very passage and have, have, have sexualized the relationship between David and Jonathan, but there's none of that in the passage here. There's deep emotive language, no doubt, but it is a deep and emotive language for the faithfulness of the friendship between David and Jonathan. He says, sort of like a, a selfless, sacrificial love that a mother has 
for a child. So Jonathan had for me and I had for Jonathan. Like the intimacy that a wife had for a husband, so I had for Jonathan. This is a depth of friendship that was not polluted by what many friendships are polluted by outside of heaven. And that is, that is the pollutant of envy and jealousy. You see, it was Jonathan who should have been the king. It, it, it was Jonathan who was Saul's son, who was the heir. But here is Jonathan who, who shows no sign of envy, no sign of jealousy, who is able to see Jesse's son take his place. It's hard for us to understand this, but we can all recognize it. Maybe you've got a friend and you've known them since middle school. You knew them from high school. You went to college with them. Maybe that you were in one another's weddings. But as your career started, one of you had, had a little bit more success in your career and you've noticed there's a strain in the relationship. One's career's overshadowed the other. One's success, quote unquote, in their families overshadowed the other. And there seems to be this barrier of envy. There seems to be this barrier of jealousy. It just wasn't there between David and Jonathan. And so David is grieving in this deep way the purity of a friendship that he had with Jonathan that was unlike any other friendship that David would have. Matthew Henry, who was a pastor from generations ago, commentator on God's word says, for a man to love one who he knew was to take the crown over his head and to be so faithful to his rival this far surpassed the highest degree of conjugal affection and constancy. But it's not just David grieving over his best friend's death. It's not just David grieving over Jonathan here. If you listen to the song of lament here, it is a song that has the specificity of Saul there too, and it surprises us. Notice in verse 24 of 2 Samuel 1, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. This is surprising. There's just a complete absence of vindictiveness here. Some have looked at this and have seen the, the worst motivations in David. There's no doubt that there are people that read this passage and say, David's just a master politician. Da David's just an actor here, feigning grief, pretending to be sad for Saul's life so he can endear himself to all the Saul's supporters here. But that's just a cynical reading of the text. The plain reading of this text right here is that we see something that is a beautiful illustration of what the son of David, Jesus Christ in the New Testament taught. In the very Sermon on the Mount, Jesus from his own lips would say, but I say to you, to me, to you, to us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You don't have an enemy like Saul. But you live long enough, you can look back in the rearview mirror of your life and there are gonna be people that crossed you and you're gonna cross people. There are going to be words that you wish that you could redo and undo. And there are going to be things that you wish you would have said that you didn't say. And things that you did say that you wish you didn't say. 
And there are going to be people that on this side of heaven, we, we wound one another. Our friendships are not in the Garden of Eden. We can betray one another. We can disappoint one another. We can harm one another. There are real wounds. And Saul really exists even today in your life and in my life. And David, as he comes to this place, he grieves. He grieves Saul's death because he doesn't dehumanize Saul. Saturday is Veterans Day. We'll celebrate that as a nation on Friday. I think one of the most moving biographies of a veteran that I've read in the last decade or so is one that maybe many of you are familiar with from the pen of Laura Hildenbrand. After her best-selling book, Sea Biscuit, she follows it up with a moving, deeply moving book called Unbroken. And in Unbroken, she tells the story of a World War II prisoner of war, Louis Zamperini, who was an Olympian runner who is captured and spends two years of his life behind enemy lines in a Japanese prison of a war camp. And he is hounded, but he's particularly hounded by one person who wants to, wants to break him and becomes an enemy to him, wants to humiliate him, and he hounds him. And for two years of his life, he makes Zemparini's life a living hell. After two years, he's released, comes back to America. He's welcomed as a hero, brought in. But he's freed of prison, but he, he makes a, a, a prison for himself back at home of alcoholism and bitterness. Many of his nights, he, he, many of his nights he would wake up in a cold sweat from a nightmare seeing the face of the, the one man that hounded him. And he can't escape this prison until at one time he, he is invited to a Billy Graham evangelistic crusade. And he finds himself there and he hears the message of a God who loves him so much that he would send his son for him. And it's that night that this prisoner of war is set free from the captor of sin and Satan himself and trusts Jesus as his savior one year after his conversion. He goes back to Japan he goes back to ground zero of where he was captive and he looks into the face of all of his captors and he's looking for that one man who he called the bird. That's, that was the nickname he gave him. And he looks and he looks and one of the captors comes to him and tells him, well, that man, your captor, the one that did not like you and you did not like him, he committed suicide. And in the words of Hildebrand, this Christian, World War II veteran, Louis felt something that he had never felt for his captor before. With a shiver of amazement, he realized it was compassion. At that moment, something shifted sweetly inside of him. It was forgiveness, beautiful and effortless and complete. For Louis Zamperini, the war was over. For King David, 
the war against Saul was over. And there is someone in your life who hounds you, hurts and wounds that are real. And my question is, do you believe, do you believe that God can give you his grace to forgive even the one who wounded you so deeply? For God, there's nothing that is too hard. For Zamperini, that was too hard. For David, that was too hard. But if we would look up from 2 Samuel chapter 1 and look beyond to the one that it points us to, it points us to the son of David, our Savior, who in his last dying words would look upon his captors and say to God himself, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if Jesus in his last dying breath can forgive the very ones who will crucify him, and if that same spirit, the spirit of Jesus dwells in you, do you not think that he would lead you to that place where you can say, the war is over. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit DawsonChurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.